You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. John A. Farrell is a senior writer at the Center for Public Integrity and the author of Tip O'Neill in the Democratic Century. His new book is Clarence Darrow, Attorney for the Damned. Thank you for joining me, John. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. John, this is such an engrossing book in so many ways. I, I, one of the things that, as we read this book, we get to see Clarence Darrow as you do, in this sense of being a Byronic hero. And I'd like you to talk to us about how you made that journey as a reader, as a writer, as a researcher. Sure. Uh, when I was a, uh, a young man, of about 12 years old, and I can be specific about this because I still have the paperback book in which I inscribed my name and the date, um, somebody gave me a copy of Irving Stone's biography of Clarence Darrow, and he was a hero of mine. Reading that book um, did a, a big, had a big impact on me and helped sort of form my political philosophy. And over the years, uh, I've always sort of looked out for Darrow books and uh, things about Darrow. Uh, and when I heard about six years ago uh, that a new collection of his letters had been discovered in the basement of one of his granddaughters um, in a box labeled Christmas Ornaments, uh, and that they were going to be given to the University of Minnesota Law Library, I decided that uh, this was a project that I wanted to take on to see what I could find out. Along the way, I did a lot of research. I went from Boston to Honolulu to Los Angeles to San Francisco, where I uh, conducted research at Berkeley and at Stanford, because an awful lot of the book takes part in California, and uh, found that, uh, like all of us, uh, he had his flaws. And somehow I had to take my previous admiration and sort of absorb these flaws and work my way through them and come out at the other end. In the acknowledgments of the book, I call it loving revisionism um, <laughs> because I still haven't lost uh, my high, re- very high regard for him. Um, but I also, uh, as a writer, feel that you have to be open and honest to truth and what you find in your research. And so that there's a lot of stuff in there that's new about him that's not very flattering, um, but I hope that at the end, when you finish reading the book, you put it down and, and you do still think he's a hero, even if he's a Byronic hero. You know, uh, actually, I found that uh, I, the new stuff that, that you talk about, that humanity makes him more sympathetic, don't you think? Well, I, I felt so. And I just hope that, you know, uh, people can get past the sin and love the <laughs> sinner. <laughs> well, uh, he has such an interesting uh, life story. And I think one of the things about reading this book is to see his story and what he did and his times in the context of those times, but also in the context of these times, because some of the stuff that happened back then just seems so pertinent, but so wild compared to what's going on today, but maybe an inversion of what's going on today. It's a really fascinating uh, journey to see the... Uh, just the background, because uh, what you do, I think, with this uh, biography, it's, I think, a little bit more than a biography. You get a really big chunk of American history here. Well, now, Darrow was born three years before the Civil War, and he died while one of the last things, crusades that he led was to warn Americans about Adolf Hitler. 
So that's a very interesting time span from um, throughout the entire Gilded Age and into the 1920s. But it's funny that you should say that because in this morning's paper, I noticed that Michelle Bachman, uh, in a speech to a conservative uh, action group, um, was quoted as saying that she believes that um, uh, creative uh, design should be taught in the uh, classrooms along with evolution. And so, really, I mean, this, the, the lesson of Darrow's biggest or best-known court case, which, was, of course, was the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, pops up again in the news just yesterday. Uh, Darrow fought a huge uh, trial in uh, Wisconsin over the rights of uh, union men, uh, defended union men in Idaho and in Los Angeles. Uh, the case that got him in a lot of trouble. And uh, so the I like to call our times today the second Gilded Age because there's so much like the 1920s or the first Gilded Age. Uh, that there's, that there's a, a tremendous number of uh, comparisons. Uh, Illinois, Darrow's home state, just uh, in the last uh, year or two abolished the death penalty, something that he had pushed for and talked about in the Leopold and, and Loeb case. So, um, you know, I find an awful lot of comparisons between uh, those times and these. You know, one of the things that it's so interesting just to, you know, when we hear the name Clarence Darrow, we think of, you know, the, the mountain peaks of his life. But <clears throat> when we read a book like yours, which is so engaging and so in-depth, we really feel, uh, come to understand that those are essentially just the tips of the iceberg. And that he started out as a kind of a corporate flack, but it was an, the untimely death of a man that he somewhat admired uh, that launched him into a very different direction. Yeah, the, the opening chapter of Irving Stone's book has one of the great set pieces of American biography. With it, It's <laughs> concocted, but it's Darrow walking up and confronting the uh, president of the railroad and saying, I, I'm quitting, I'm going to go work for Eugene Debs. And something like that happened in that he felt guilty working at the railroad because the railroad was the supreme corporate job of his time. And he had this deep compulsion for the underdog that didn't really fit with what he was doing on his day job. So uh, he did leave the railroad and go to work eventually for Eugene Debs. And uh, that's the way he sort of uh, struck out on his own and, and began to, to rectify uh, uh, or uh, make amends for the, the, the fact that he had previously been this, this uh, corporation guy. Um, but uh, one of the things that I enjoyed doing the research was uh, finding the little cases, um, the gangsters and the bootleggers and the con men, and uh, um, you know, finding out that he was a great champion of uh, sexual freedom and free love and that uh, when people got in trouble for... Uh, passing out pamphlets in the Victorian era, uh, urging that women should be uh, respected and treated gently in bed, uh, and they were clamped down by the law for this, uh, Darrow was one of the persons who would uh, defend them. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the lawyer figure in the movie and the play Chicago, Billy Flynn, is based in part on Clarence Darrow, uh, not only for the fact that uh, he was a great romancer himself, but uh, also because he took cases like that and one of my favorites I, I uh, cite in the book is the one of uh, Emma Simpson, who, who went into court with a revolver for her divorce proceedings, shot her husband dead there in court. The bailiff jumped up and said, you've killed him. She said, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> so there wasn't really a lot of doubt about uh, whether she had committed the act or not. And Darrell got her off by uh, what's the classic definition of uh, chutzpah, which is to ask the jury to have mercy on the widow. <laughs> Wow. Well, you know, that's one of the things that uh, the way you uh, one of the things I think you do very well in this book is give us a great character arc. 
And that's, you know, the, the real, you know, uh, bridge from beginning to end that makes us such a compelling read. So I'd like you to talk about how you created that kind of character arc. And, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, fitting in all these historical events, the big ones, the little ones, and then trying to understand how the man's emotions, emotional development, his emotional maturity, and all this kind of fit into the things we know from the external to your kind of creation of the internal movement. Sure. It's, it's very, it's, uh, his life was almost like a Hollywood screenplay. Um, he started out in a small Ohio town. He moved to the big city, had some early success, um, uh, developed a sense of hubris, uh, was, was known as America's greatest uh, labor lawyer, um, and then crashed uh, as hard as any American probably ever has um, got indicted for jury bribing in Los Angeles, um, was tried twice, uh, convinced one jury uh, that he was uh, not guilty, convinced another one, or at least got a, a hung jury on the other one. But when he uh, um, went back to Chicago in, uh, right before World War I, after these two trials in Los Angeles, uh, he was a nobody. He, he, was, he didn't have a law practice anymore. His uh, um, his practice had been dissolved. Nobody wanted him. The cases that he took were, were losers. He would roam around the Midwest giving lectures for $100 a night. Um, and he slowly started this amazing comeback at the age of uh, almost 60, uh, representing Isaac Bond, who was a, uh, a black American charged with uh, raping and killing a white woman, and uh, then representing communists and anarchists during the, the Red Scare. And finally, in his 60s, um, he had a string of amazing cases, uh, the Leopold and Loeb case where he managed to convince the judge not to hang uh, the two thrill killers, um, the big monkey trial. And then what I think is really the capstone and, the, uh, and also the supreme indicator of, of his character was that after the monkey trial, he was as famous as any lawyer in America. His comeback was complete. Uh, he was old. He didn't have a lot of money. He could have commanded the biggest fees from the biggest corporations and lived the rest of his days out very comfortably. And instead, he took a case two months later uh, in Detroit for $5,000 from the NAACP because uh, um, an African-American doctor who had moved into a white neighborhood in Detroit, um, his house had come under siege by a white mob, and uh, he and his friends had reacted by shooting out at the mob and he, had been, he and they had been charged with murder. And Darrow went to Detroit um, to defend two principles. One is that African-Americans should have the right to uh, live anywhere. And two, that African-Americans, if you can believe it, um, it, had to be stated in, it had to be stated in one in court. But the, the second principle was that uh, African-Americans have the same rights of self-defense as white Americans. And he won. Yeah, amazingly, the NAACP records show that they did not believe that he could win this case. Uh, and he won it. It took him 10 months. It ruined his health. He had a, a heart attack in the, the summer of 1926 that followed all this. But that's what he chose to do with all the fame that he had gathered. So it is a very uh, um, wonderful little arc uh, in his life, as you said. Um, and, uh, and that sort of is, is the thing that puts me over the edge in, on, on Darrow's side in the end was when he had completed the comeback, what did he do with it? And, that, and he did a very noble thing. And that's, you know, one of the things that, that you do very well is to, to give us a sense of the character of the man, both his flaws and, and his strengths. And I think one of the ways you do this is, is too, by recreating the backdrop and all the various, you know, the wild things that were happening back then. 
right, you know, we tend to think that we live in the age of ultimate everything, but, you know, we, we there were, you know, the, the Haymarket bombings, the anarchists, you know, worker fighting, firing, militias firing into workers. I mean, uh, this is some, some really wild stuff that was happening back then. So I'd like you to just talk about the political environment, how it, you know, shaped your view of him, how it shaped him, how it helped shape us now. Yeah, the, the, the country really changed from the sort of uh, Jeffersonian, Arcadian, idyllic uh, dream before the Civil War um, to this in, uh, industrial dynamo afterwards. Uh, the Civil War had a lot to do with that, but also the Industrial Revolution and the um, conquering of the uh, continent and the building of the railroads. And suddenly, Americans who, um, as Darrell used to say, when in his childhood, uh, if you worked in a small factory shop, you knew the boss, he invited you over to Sunday dinner, and you might even be able to marry his daughter. You, know, you sat with the family in the, in the, in the same pew on Sunday. And by the, mid, uh, by the uh, end of the uh, 19th century, uh, during the time that's known as the Gilded Age, um, the robber barons uh, had made, up, made themselves obscenely wealthy, and there was no chance that any working man, even if he could speak English, would ever, you know, talk or, or dream of going to dinner at his at his boss's house. So there was a a big difference in American society in that uh, 30 or 40 years around the uh, Civil War, and uh, there was a reaction against it. And Darrow was in the midst of of that reaction. He was a a strong voice uh, when the labor movement first erupted in the years after the Civil War. He was a leader of the urban populist movement. When you hear about the populists, you always think about populism coming from the farms and William Jennings Bryan and the silver issue. But there was also urban populism, and Darrow was a leader of urban populism. And uh, then you move on to the progressive era, and Darrow was a big uh, municipal reformer as well. So he had sort of dabbled in all these different political movements that uh, uh, brought about uh, change in America and got uh, a handle on this amazing industrial uh, uh, explosion, uh, and then uh, he uh, ran for office, uh, lost, uh, raced for Congress, um, took a couple of jobs as a municipal reformer, lawyer, uh, won a big case before the um, Supreme Court, but uh, uh, at about the age of 50, he just sort of grew too cynical and gave up on politics as a way of uh, changing things, uh, and that's when he got in trouble in, in Los Angeles. He sort of uh, his cynicism lapsed over into his uh, courthouse and courtroom duties as well. You know, um, uh, as a man who has admittedly um, admired uh, uh, Darrow for much of your life, uh, taking on the task of writing a new biography must have been daunting. I mean, between Irving Stone and, you know, Anthony Lucas, you have some huge competition, but you also had an advantage in these new letters which simultaneously and interestingly, I, I, it sounds kind of undermined some of your admiration for Darrow. So I, I'd like you to talk about the process of integrating the research that you did into what you already knew of the man and kind of recreating him for yourself. That must have been a, a, not an easy personal journey. No, it's the, it's the second time that I've done it. I, I also did a biography of Tip O'Neill mm -hmm. uh, with much the same process, which is that you, you obviously, if you're going to spend five or six years with a person, you go in with somebody that you like because you don't want to spend five or six years with somebody that, that you detest because you're going to be literally living with them you know, 12, all your work, waking hours. 
Um, and then you find, inevitably, you begin to find flaws. And in Darrow's case, um, uh, his, one of his mistress's letters and diaries um, have been preserved, and they're at the University of Oregon. So at the University of Oregon, I discovered reading her diaries that she believed that Darrow did indeed uh, bribe the jury in um, Los Angeles. At the new collection of letters, uh, which is at the University of Minnesota, I found um, a note from Darrow to his son uh, telling him to send a payment of $4,500 to one of the jurors in the Los Angeles bribery trial, uh, which is not you know, total evidence, but certainly is a compelling indication that, that uh, he may have even bribed his own jury when he was being tried for jury bribing. Um, and uh, at uh, Boston University in Boston, I found um, a couple of letters from uh, defendants in uh, a rape murder case in Hawaii, which indicated that um, they, in fact, uh, um, had been guilty of uh, some of the uh, things that um, the uh, prosecutors said they were, and Darrow had gotten them off. Um, he didn't get them innocent in court, but he got them uh, convinced the governor that it would be better to commute their sentences to one hour served in the governor's office. So uh, there was a series of, of different things like this along the way. But it, um, he's, he is, he's a very witty guy as well. Uh, he's a philosopher. He wrote uh, two novels, um, lots of uh, wonderful journalism. Uh, his diaries on his European trips are, are, are fun to read. Um, he's not too far away from uh, Irving Stone's very wry and cheerful folk hero. So you can keep loving him as you, as you um, go through. Um, uh, the big, big, biggest obstacle, of course, is getting past Spencer Tracy and inherit the wind because uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the Darrow that everybody remembers. Um, and, and, uh, but inherit the wind is not too far off the mark. It's uh, a little bit of an exaggeration, but not too far. Now, uh, the other thing I'd like to, to ask you about is just in terms of creating the, the prose and, you know, the level of detail you do, because this is really an engrossing read. It really puts us in that time, in that place. Did this prose just flow from the tip of your pen, or was this a book that required maybe a, a bit of a revision? Well, I made this awful mistake in both books of writing long the first time, thinking, well, I can always come back and cut later. Um, and if, if I, as I look at the book, I see it, that it's choppy in places, and that reflects the fact that I should have exerted more discipline from the start. If you're a, a poet or a novelist, you know this. Um, you write, and each word is very carefully crafted. And um, when you've gone out and done all this research on a nonfiction book, you know, it, it took you days, hours of your life, money to go out and find this little nugget. And so each one of them becomes a precious little nugget and find that you don't want to lose. Um, and the manuscript grows and grows and grows. So that was my uh, error as a, as a writer um, in this one. And I hope it doesn't show too much. I'm happy to see that you like the book. So that I guess I did a pretty good job. No, I, I actually I really like the level of detail. I think it's it's necessary to put us in that place and time because. Um, it's so alike yet so different from ours, and it really gives us a lot of perspective on where we were, where we are, and how we got here. Well, you know, it's a big help. Now, this is interesting, because in the Bay Area, people will understand that, but the, the Internet is a huge help for uh, historians. Uh, you have, for example, in, in Darrow's case, the Chicago Tribune, everything ever printed in the Chicago Tribune, you can read online now. And 
So I did an awful lot of research just sitting in, uh, at the kitchen uh, table with my computer going through um, uh, uh, old Chicago tribunes, and that gave me a basic chronology that I could uh, find, uh, I could trace. Uh, and then the University of Minnesota did a wonderful thing with these, with these new letters. They put them all online. Um, and the, uh, the journals of uh, uh, the Studenberg family in Idaho, you were talking about Anthony Lucas's book, they're online too. So uh, um, there's, there's an awful lot of information, and, and someday I'm sure uh, historians will be able to do the entire book <laughs> just out of their kitchen uh, because so much stuff is available uh, now on the Internet, and you, can, um, you almost don't have to read my book as, as the last word on the subject. You can use it as a guide to go online and find the actual documents yourself. The whole 10,000 words of, uh, of the first uh, Darrow bribery, uh, I'm sorry, 10,000 pages of the first Darrow bribery trial are online. So um, all this stuff would have been a lot easier if it had been online six years ago, but it's there now. And, you, and uh, I encourage anybody who's interested, just go on and just uh, poke about, and you'll find wonderful stuff. Well, a great place to start is your book. I've been speaking with John A. Farrell. His new book is Clarence Darrow, Attorney for the Damned. Thank you for joining me, John. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.